0: Hello friends, Shipper Fools Broadcast here. We have back with us today, Rodney Blackhurst to talk through another one of his essays entitled Concerning the Mysteries of Wine and Spiritual Transformation in Sufi and Christian Perspectives. I'm fairly well acquainted with wine in an everyday profane sense, uh, perhaps too much so, like many of us, and less well acquainted with Sufism and Christian theology, of which I'm quite ignorant, frankly, Uh, particularly when it comes to the symbolism of wine. I'd kind of noticed in the past with, say, Rumi's poetry, um, that there are references to wine, uh, also understanding that wine is very much haram in Islam, which always leads to a little bit of confusion for me. Uh, Then, of course, we have the Christian side of things, Uh, the infamous Catholic propensity for drink, uh, various orders of Orthodox, Trappist, Benedictine monks who manufacture wines and beer, etc. So I enjoyed this new insight very much, and I'm hoping you will also. Please enjoy. Seems kind of ridiculous, doesn't it? If you think about it... the, the. the the best possible thing you could have is is sunlight uh walking around being healthy exercising your lungs uh get, you know all those kinds of things and what do they do they lock everyone indoors
1: <laughs> yeah i know yeah 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 it's crazy uh yeah we've had what five lockdowns in victoria uh, i think uh, in succession yeah
0: right this com- uh, comrade andrews is it Who yeah
1: is comrade it? andrews that's right um yeah, it's been fairly severe in Victoria. Um, they seem to really enjoy it.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm not, not sure what it is. I mean, you would think if it was effective, you wouldn't have to keep doing it.
1: I know Andrew said at the last press conference, he said, uh, you only get one chance with this. And I think, well, you've had five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, five. Well,
0: just one more. I'm sure that's... Yeah, uh, just
1: one more. Yeah, yeah. The next one i right. will do it. Yeah, yeah it's not going to work. Uh, i don't think it's going to work so I,
0: I i was reading somewhere that the impact on the victorian economy is the same as the spanish flu and world war 1 combined
1: yeah combined yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. that's
0: right so th- are you locked are you locked down there in in regional victoria or is it just just melbourne yeah we there? are
1: yeah, yeah no we're locked down we're locked down everything's shut and uh and, You know, I've got friends who are casual workers, and they just get nothing. They got nothing during lockdowns. Yeah,
0: you, you wonder how people survive. I'm I'm lucky. I'm one of these people that has a job that can be done pretty much remotely anywhere. But uh, yeah, it's tough on people. I don't think the politicians really seem to give a shit, to be honest.
1: <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so. They got this. Uh, uh, the whole thing's being led by you know the public health. Uh, administration. So, yeah, I don't know.
0: Kind of like a medical fascism.
1: Yeah, yeah, medical fascism. It's um yeah, that's sort of interesting, isn't it? Because um uh you know some some dystopian literature like uh 1984 doesn't predict that at all. Mm. Um he there's uh Orwell never thought that they'd be wearing, you know, white lab coats. <laughs> um the you know he's the he had the jackboot model of um, of oppression. Yeah. Uh, I guess maybe maybe uh, Brave New World of uh, Aldous Huxley is more closer to it. That sort of medicalized, um population where the the citizen is patient.
0: Yeah, I guess it's easier to sell a fear of death probably than some economic utopianism, if if you know what I mean.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: In some ways, I think the subject we're about to attack is a difficult subject, um, particularly for commoners like myself. Uh, so I'll, I'll try my best to keep it understandable and logical for people uh, listening, in. as I'm going to assume most of them uh, not well acquainted with these ideas and concepts, because it really is an esoteric subject. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. I think, I'll go. Um, I'll I'll try to keep it simple too. Yeah. Excellent. That that'll suit me. Um, I think it would be fruitful for people to get this, however. I think um, in in society now, there's kind of portrayed a clash of civilizations, you know, the East and West, the Middle East and the West, Islam and Christianity, um, you know, projecting aggressions towards one another. And this has been going on for millennia, really, when you look at it. Um, this clash is explained most commonly, I think, by people um extending it from some kind of sociological but but typically i think a religious and spiritual standpoint a difference in those those things uh briefly your essay analyzes christian and islamic uh perspectives and really in a way seeks to unify these apparently irreconcilable differences through the theme of of wine um And I think most listeners here are Westerners, and they're probably pretty well acquainted with the Christian tradition and Christian theology, at least to some degree, because they're brought up in it. Um, So I I wanted to start off with foundational basics. And and to start, I wanted to look at Sufism and Islam in general. Can we talk a little bit about Sufism? Uh, For example, I know that it's mystical. I know that there's orders that trace their lineage back to Muhammad. I know that uh, the adherents and orders are not necessarily well-received by Muslims necessarily. Um, can, can we generally talk about Sufism and what is it in the context of Islam?
1: Yeah, okay. Um, the, the usual model, and you find it in many, many different sources, and I think it's also implicit in lots of sources too, is of um, Islam having an inside and an outside. Uh, so they use a, um, a sort of a seed uh, metaphor where you have the shell and you have the kernel and um, you know that sort of language that sort of imagery goes right through Sufi poetry and um, so the idea is that Islam as is a a complete religion has an inside and an outside and the outside um, islamic externalism is the islam with which people are most familiar and will know from the news cycles and uh and probably local muslim uh, local muslims as well that is to say it's a, a legal system is islam on the outside it's essentially legalistic but uh the sufis claim at least that their their particular version of Islam is the interior of the religion. And so they don't see it as a sect or a cult of the religion, but rather the internal dimension of uh, the religion itself, and therefore sort of uh, entirely consistent with the external legalism, which acts as a sort of protective shell to protect what is the essential meaning of uh, the religion, which is uh, understood by the Sufis who devote themselves to going deeper and deeper into the, into the symbols and the meanings of, uh, for instance, the Quranic text. So the externalists will only read the external layer of the text, whereas the Sufis will try to go deeper and deeper into the more esoteric dimensions of uh, the text and the symbols how would the
0: average muslim uh view sufis these days does it depend
1: yeah yeah, it's nuanced Uh, so so it depends on what environment you're talking about Um, for instance in saudi arabia it's generally frowned upon Um, i'm told that there are sufi groups active in saudi arabia but i think the official policy is that it's frowned upon and there's there's historical reasons for that too which have to be understood not just sort of essentialist readings or essentialist uh, meanings and reasons but rather uh, historical ones contextual ones so that for instance in the colonial period um or in the post-colonial period rather, um, populations in a lot of Muslim countries took a dim view of the Sufis because they said that one of the reasons why they were overtaken by colonial powers is that the religion had for too long devoted itself to navel-gazing. And uh, so that uh, in the post-colonial period, they're much more interested in Islam as a social and political system to, to, to uh, replace, you know, as, as a basis for self-government. Um, so they see Sufism as maybe old fashioned. They see it as uh, one of the historical problems that led to the conquests of colonial colonialism, um, uh, as well as historical, historical suspicion about uh, the Sufis as practising all sorts of things that aren't really aren't really uh, permitted in Islam.
0: Interestingly, and, and this is just to um, deviate for a moment, uh, obviously traditionalist scholars uh, like Guaynon uh, and Fritjof, Shuan, for example, they both um, <clears throat> converted to Sufism. Um, I just wondered why Why is that? What's the appeal here? There must be something Yeah. Yes. Yeah,
1: this. yeah. Um- Okay, well, let's, let's take a case like gagnon um in his uh, personal history, he spent a lot of time dealing with various esoteric groups in Europe, um, esoteric types of Catholicism, uh, Freemasonry, and those sorts of organizations. And in the end, he decided that he couldn't find any, any place or anything in the in that, Especially French world um, that he thought was authentic, and in the end he and he he went to uh, he went to Cairo, and um, converted to Islam and embraced uh, the Sufi methods and became a member of a particular Sufi order. Um, so it's a like a lot of lot of people um, they're sort of disappointed in the in the state of uh, the Christian world and and think that it lacks an esoteric dimension and also lacks a a praxis, a praxis, a a very concrete form of practice, because above all, Sufism is a practice. You know, it has certain methods by which one can make spiritual progress or get nearer to God or uh, however you want to describe that, but it has very concrete practices, whereas uh, groups in Europe may have certain esoteric beliefs, but they seem a bit short on uh, concrete and authentic practices. I think that's one of the attractions for people uh, in Sufism. Um, also, also they're probably attracted to the fact that it's very rich tradition in terms of art and philosophy, and uh, 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 it's very nurturing music. Um, It's a very nurturing and rich tradition like that.
0: Even the the orders of monks in Europe, um, say with the spiritual exercises of Loyola uh, as an example, that wouldn't be considered concrete? So Sufism, does that have something more to offer?
1: Well, certainly, certainly, that's true. That's true. Um, The monastic traditions in in Europe and even the mendicant traditions uh, uh, and others uh, and as you say, Jesuits and, 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 and so on, they have um, developed spiritual disciplines, certainly. Um, but usually those are closed to monks. And, uh, you know, there's the question, for instance, of the hesychasm in, um, in the Greek Orthodox Church, which is traditionally practiced by monks. And uh, there, there's some controversy as to whether um, laymen can practice that successfully, or whether they should or not. Whether it's an exclusive practice of the monks, because it's a it's a very deep sort of dedication. Um, there's those sorts of. Those sorts of questions. Certainly, certainly, there are methods in Christianity, but in Ganon's case, he just didn't find anything that was uh, sufficiently authentic. I think, as it happens, he he was a mathematician, and the Sufi group to which he attached himself, um, I think, in North Africa, the Shadhili's, have a very rich symbolism, of mathematical symbolism, as part of their tradition. So perhaps he was specifically attracted to that type of um, intellectual uh, path in in his particular case.
0: Traditional Christianity is, of course, Trinitarian, um, and Islam reminds me more in some ways of something like Buddhism. So it's got this kind of understanding of a non-dualistic absolute um, that can scarcely be comprehended, if at all. Um, while not strictly the same as Buddhism, I I definitely saw some similarities between the two, Um, which as an aside, kind of makes sense given the interaction of various cultures in Central Asia, I think over the last couple of millennia. Kind of makes sense that there's some kind of intertwining there. And yet you have Christianity that was mostly uh, in Western Europe or at least the Catholic side of things, I guess. Um, So on the surface, this seems to me to be a kind of irreconcilable Difference between the theology of Christianity and Islam, um, but what, what am I missing here?
1: Uh, yeah, on the on the point of the Trinity, you mean? That uh, uh, yeah, that on the on the surface, of course, it does seem irreconcilable, doesn't it? Um, because for a start, Christianity conceives of and and describes the divinity as uh, persons and specifically as uh, in family relationships so father and son Um, whereas islam doesn't do that islam wants to take the abrahamic god the one god of abraham and sort of take that idea and push it as far as you can you've got to take monotheism monotheism and push it as far as you can and uh you, you you end up in a very as you say almost a buddhistic um, sort of place with this very very abstract uh one the very very abstract deity that's not very concrete whereas christianity wants to keep it concrete and uh, of course wants to is based on the incarnation it's uh it's an incarnationist religion so um, whereas in islam the real parallel there is with the quran the quran is uh the incarnation in islam not muhammad but uh but the the quran is the incarnationist elements in islam um on the on the surface of it though it seems very hard to reconcile those those two things um uh, there's lots of cases where where people have pious people of various of both sides have reconciled those two things Um, But uh, I agree it's very difficult on the surface of it, and that's why I wanted to explore in in the particular essay that we're talking about, I wanted to explore the differences between Christianity and Islam by taking a point of contact that seems completely uh, contrary, that is to say, uh, wine, wine drinking. Uh, Islam forbids Wine drinking, wine drinking, as a you know, as a as a matter of faith, and Christianity, at least in uh, sacramental religions, it's a sacrament. You know, it's uh, it's uh, it's uh, a divine thing rather than forbidden. And so, I'm always interested in the clash of the two religions and how they try to reconcile each other. Um, but certainly, the question of the Trinity is very difficult. Yeah,
0: I came across some Rumi poems uh, some years ago while I was in a vineyard in the Barossa, actually, of all places, um, and someone had chalked up a a quote from one of his poems. I forget which one it was exactly. It was, I think there's a series of poems he did about wine or something. I forget the title. Anyway, um, it's quite ridiculous looking back that they used it, but you know, it's good marketing perhaps. Um, this did lead me in turn to look at some of his work. Um, and interestingly, his poetry is replete with references to wine and intoxication. And doing some research for this, I noticed that there is a theme in Sufism in general. Um, and a, you just referenced this, um, this, this notion of wine, intoxication. Um, why, why do the Sufis employ this metaphor, given that no one actually drinks alcohol? It's haram. As you say, yeah, yeah, it's
1: it's yeah. it's remarkable, isn't it? It's it's sort of it's remarkable, and that was sort of my starting point with this. Actually, that essay that I wrote, I actually wrote that for a, a conference that I attended in Pakistan, of all places, and uh, for some reason or other, I, it was an inter 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 religion uh conference, and I decided to tackle the question of wine and wine drinking, um, because. As you say, as soon as you turn, into, turn to any Sufi poetry or Sufi literature, uh, you, you're constantly running into these metaphors of wine drinking. And yet uh, wine is haram in uh, Islam. In, in part, it's just a continuation of pre-Islamic poetic traditions, especially in Persia and uh, probably northern India as well. Um, there's a very rich tradition, pre Islamic tradition of um, wine poetry and love poetry. And when Islam arrived, that poetic tradition was spiritualized and internalized, so to speak. But the, the spiritual state that is in question here is that, the, or the, the spiritual ideal that's in question here for the Sufis the ideal in Islam uh, for the Sufis in any case, is to be outwardly sober and inwardly drunk. So it's a question of interior and exterior once again. It's this idea of the the uh, um, the exterior, the shell and the kernel and and uh, the relationship between the two things. Islam Islam has this very strong symbolism of inside outside. You can even see it in the architecture, you know, traditional Islamic architecture. You don't have a front yard. You have a, a central court. Um, it's an internal world. You have an internal world and you have an external world. And you have very stark lines of division between those two things so that, for instance, uh, uh, women don't have to be veiled indoors, but they do outdoors. There's an inside and outside. Um, to traditional Islamic uh, symbolism and Islamic society, and that's carried through into into wine drinking, where you have, uh, as I say, uh, externally sober but internally drunk, so the Sufis seek an internal drunkenness that is not a violation of the uh, Islamic law, which is a prohibition against drunkenness.
0: That comes across very strongly in Rumi's poetry and not being a connoisseur at all, but he's consistently expressing that state of mind, I think, in his poetry. Um, I once saw a debate online uh, yeah. with, I guess, what you describe as a, an exoteric <clears throat> Islamic scholar. I don't know who he was exactly or what what um, what, what, what school he was a part of. The audience, someone in the audience asked him, when, when a Muslim reaches paradise, there are basically rivers of wine uh, to be consumed. It's expressed in this way. I, I later checked it out. Um, yet wine is very haram the good Muslims. And as we've gone through, he was really unable to answer this in a satisfactory way, I thought. Like it, it seemed like he was jumping over himself to try and find an explanation We've seen, like, from a Sufi perspective, like, it's quite uh, a neat explanation. You have the inner and the outer explanations for this. But for your average Muslim, how do they view this? Because uh, I'm just curious, in their minds, this must create some sort of uh, discontent, I would have thought. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, they're very suspicious of this pursuit of um, spiritual ecstasy, that um, they regard... they. they, reg- they- they, they might regard it as uh, excess. It's and the, the Islam sort of frowns upon excess piety. Um, you know, it frowns upon people that just pray all day. No, 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 you've got to be uh, active in the world and you've got to fit into society. And so, Islam is a social system very much rather than just a, a personal. Um, a personal religion, and so uh, dabbling with even the symbolism of wine and so forth can be frowned upon by people who regard it as excessive and uh, can lead people astray. Um, and so the Sufis can be can be seen like that too. The the Sufis can be seen as um, people that lead people into excess, even an excess of uh, religious excess. Mm. Uh, R- Rumi and, Rumi and, and co, uh, the, those people have successfully integrated in, in, that's in a Turkish context, although Rumi's Persian. Um, in a Turkish context, uh, you get a different mix of secular and sacred in Turkey, in the Turkish Republic. And even before that, in um, the Ottoman Empire, than you did in the Arab world or the Persian world, and uh, other other parts of Islam, there's different sort of different flavours of Islam in different places, and um, uh, the tolerance of wine and of also of Sufism is different in different places.
0: Obviously, it's extremely complex and goes well beyond the scope of this podcast, um, but in southeast asia in indonesia malaysia places like that how do they view sufism is there much sufism around or is it um more more something in the middle east
1: no no it's 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 it's, uh it's generally frowned upon in um in those countries say malaysia and indonesia um, for various reasons again because all the tasks of the post-colonial building period don't really require that sort of piety for a start, which is more very internal and not the sort of thing that you you need when you're building a new country. So the religious authorities didn't promote that sort of religion to hold together these new post-colonial nation states. Um, Instead, they promote a a legalistic type of uh, uh, Islam. And moreover, uh, of recent times in the throughout the 20th century and later part of the 20th century especially those countries were very much influenced by the Wahhabi uh, orthodoxy from saudi arabia which was enormously wealthy and built thousands and thousands of mosques in all over the world um, if you a place like malaysia for instance they say malaysia has more mosques per head of population than any other country in the Islamic world. A large number of those are funded by uh, Saudi um, sources. And so that particular type of Islam is hostile to Sufism and regards it as, um, as an innovation, regards it as a heresy.
0: To circle back to Western society, Alcohol is definitely not being off the menu, I would say, largely. Can, can we explore why the Christian mysteries seem to retain these symbolical associations and yet at the same time, at least in the population, there is drinking uh, amongst Christian uh, people? And then, of course, you have various types of Christians that also drink um, sparingly or not. Um, what was the difference there? What, what happened
1: Oh well, um, uh, there's diff- the religious background to this is very extensive. You know, um, for instance, there's different different uh, covenants in the Bible, and uh, the covenant of Noah doesn't include alcohol. The covenant of Noah um, is is the one that Islam goes back to, and also a number of Protestant groups, which I find really interesting. The parallels between. Protestantism and um, some types of pro- Protestantism and Islam, uh, you find Protestant groups who who are teetotalers, who who shun wine. This is because uh, this all comes from a particular passage in uh, the Gospels where Christ says that he won't drink wine until he drinks the new wine of the, of the kingdom. Um, a lot of A lot of uh, Protestant groups take the view that wine drinking is forbidden or rather postponed until the second coming of Christ when you can drink the new wine. Other Christian groups, mainstream Christian groups, don't agree with that. They believe that the new covenant has arrived and the new wine is served in the blood of Christ. And so they're the sort of sacramental religions and moreover because christ the sacrifice of christ paid paid the full price paid the all debts were paid Um, it means that there's no uh, no restrictions on food or drink for christians christians can eat what they like and they can drink what they like um, because christ makes all things lawful Um, whereas in the other religions all things are not lawful uh by that i mean uh these protestant groups and uh and islam for instance all things are not lawful rather they're some things are postponed until the end of the cycle this is what you get in islam so that yeah you can drink wine in paradise but not in this world and so if you drink wine in this world, you forfeit the wine of paradise, and uh, there are Protestant groups where that that operates as well. But socially, of course, the Christian civilization is a wine drinking, uh, or that is to say, a alcohol drinking civilization, yeah.
0: Yeah, I guess partially because if you drank water, you'd probably die, um, may have been a driving factor in that as well, perhaps, uh, at least in medieval times. Yeah. Um- <clears throat> We have, we have um, Trappist monks making beer, uh, Orthodox monks making wine, uh, liquors, liqueurs, the Benedictines. I, I j- even found out recently that medieval Irish monks invented whiskey, which I had no idea about. Um, and of course, you have all the stereotypes that go along with this, um, particularly with the Irish. There, there is a suspicion I've always had that many of these guys have little or no issue um, getting on it, I guess. Um, definitely if their keenness for fermenting and distilling and brewing uh, is any indication of this. Uh, have I got this wrong? Am I viewing this wrong? I mean, there's, there's stories about monks kind of going for it.
1: <laughs> yeah, 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 I think so. Uh, I mean, that's right. Um, in in a civilization where wine drinking is permitted and wine drinking is the central sacrament, um, you're likely to end up with alcohol problems i guess um and uh islam sort of takes that view islam takes the view this is quranic that i think even that says um uh whatever whatever benefits there are of wine drinking are outweighed by the by the by the downside um but yeah, but what, what's going on there, though, is that, uh, see, we see alcohol very much through Protestant eyes, where it becomes very problematic and it becomes a social evil and drunkenness is a social evil. But underneath that, there's a very strong tendency in European civilization to regard, and this goes back to the ancient Greeks, to regard drunkenness as sort of a a divine state. We no longer think of it like that. We don't see someone who's drunk and think that they might be uh in some sort of uh, spiritual elevation or some sort of divine state but lots of civilizations have done that i i you know in I talk about monks in in japan i noticed in the temples there you know the uh they produced the sake and the, the the rice wine and the temples traditionally did all of that and it was regarded as uh, as sacred, and the drunkenness that you get from Saki is regarded as, as, uh, as a sort of a divine inspiration rather than outright drunkenness. So you have those, you do have those sorts of two two views there. You have this very moralistic view of uh, drunkenness, and on the other hand, you do have the view that's this Dionysian view that wine is a, and drunkenness is a special state.
0: I can attest to the Zen monks doing that. I had a teacher that um, spent some time over there. Uh, he did a long meditation. I think it was 15 hours a day for five days or something. And at the end of it, this, when he was a lot younger, he was shocked the monks uh, broke out bottles of sake and they all proceeded to get around and get, uh, get drunk after sitting down for uh, five days. It's, I thought that was quite unusual, but there must be something to it. Um, but it's interesting you compare Protestant uh, uh, outlooks with, with that of uh, Islam as well, because I, I kind of saw similarities between the two in, in terms of there being a teetotaling kind of moralism uh, between the two, but also that you have in Western civilization, obviously you have ancient Greece and that platonic world, and then the Christian reaction against the excesses of that world. Um, is that an inheritance of that uh, initial uh, rebellion against the perceived excesses of, of the pagan world, do you think, in, in terms – and, and the, the treatment of alcohol is just an outpouring of that?
1: Yeah, I think it is. That's right. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, the whole, the whole ancient world fell apart and uh christianity emerges from that and then later on islam to sort of mend the whole thing back together yeah i mean it, there's an interesting sym- symmetry there isn't there That like where um uh julius caesar created the created a world and alexander the great great created a world and um the the world of julius caesar became christendom and the world of uh alexander the great became islam Uh, they're both in some ways continuations of the pagan world but uh, have sort of attempted to impose a a moral a moral structure and a political structure too to some extent uh, uh, on the chaos of the of the ancient world that fell apart
0: what was the pre-islamic world like. It's not something I have any idea about. Mm. I guess it depends Mm. on the region. I can imagine uh, Bactria or Afghanistan was Buddhist, for example. What what other influences did we have, maybe in terms of Saudi Arabia and places like that, I wonder? Was it a Mm. nomadic kind of paganism? Um,
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And um, this is one of the reasons why why, uh, uh, wine and wine wine is forbidden in Islam because it's a it, it it's equated to urban living, whereas Islam is essentially a nomadic religion, and so the Islam moves into the that nomadic world of Central Asia, of the Arabian Peninsula, North Africa. Um, it's essentially a a nomadic religion, or rather, it's a prolongation of the nomadic mode. Um, it's a prolongation of all the things of the spirituality of nomadism. So for instance, you know the, the Muslim uh, prays on a prayer rug and you can f- roll it up and put it under your arm and carry it with you. You know it's a religion made for nomads in that way. but wine growing, wine growing implies urban living. It implies uh, the city, it implies a settlement rather than so it's uh, the opposite to uh, nomadism. Um, so yeah, Islam moves into a nomadic world. That's the difference. Whereas, uh, Christianity moves into a farming world in, in Europe, uh, in its heartland. It's an interesting demarcation.
0: I mean, there's, there's other nomadic cultures. I would say even today you have the Mongols who definitely have no issues with alcohol at all, <laughs> and then of course. I suppose in prehistoric times you have the Scythians and people like that who famously drank uncut wine. Um, how, how is the desert? I guess is just no way to make alcohol, is there? Is that maybe one way of viewing it? I mean, is it? That's true. That's
1: one. That's one problem, isn't it? Um, uh, although you know, alcohol is very easy to make, uh, and I made that point in my essay. It's a, It's a. Not, it's amazingly easy to make anything. You know, any sugars will ferment. In a in a any reasonable temperature, Um, uh, but in the desert, yeah, there's a shortage of things, isn't there? That's right. you could
0: do camel milk. uh, Yeah, they and they
1: do, and they do, but uh, uh, yeah, you've got to water's a premium, and uh, and alcohols uh, uh, just not part of their lifestyle.
0: So to circle back now, I guess to the theme of the article, the wine, and we've touched on this a bit already. Um, but from uh, the perspective of these two religions and perhaps in the past, and I guess we've already gone through this to some extent, but why, why is the symbolism of wine so important uh, in these traditions? What's the historical context for this?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, um Historically, historically, the in the ancient world, pre-Christian world, um, and you get you have the the temple rites of Judaism for a start, and the sanctification of the harvest. I guess that's ultimately one of the one of the roots of this, the sanctification of the harvest. So the bread and the wine, um, and the the temple and the priests sanctify those things, um, and. But you get the mysteries of bread and wine in the Greek world and in the Roman world and in other cultures as well. You get a very complex thing, very ancient, very ancient to do with bread and wine. Um, Then what happens is it gets taken up into Christianity and into uh, other religions. So the, the sacred meal is there right from the beginning. Christianity adopts that and adopts it as the as the uh, uh, the Eucharist, as the Last Supper, and makes appropriate changes to the symbolism, and uses that symbolism in a Christian context, which is concerns you know the incarnation of Christ and the wine becomes the blood. Whereas Islam doesn't use any of that symbolism at all. Islam has to use the symbolism that. We referred to earlier, namely that uh, paradise has rivers of wine. There's any amount of wine in paradise, but not in this world. And uh, Islamic symbolism, so therefore, is about in the wine symbolism, it's sort of a delayed symbolism, except for the Sufis, because they don't want to wait till they get to paradise. They want that divine inebriation now. Um, they want it's it's experiential. Uh, that's the difference. But why why is wine so important? For all of those reasons, historical reasons, but also for what it symbolises. The grapes, a bunch of grapes represents multiplicity. It represents all the many things of the world. Um, and then you then you sort of refine all of that and extract the one essence. You extract it down um, into into a, a sort of a tincture of the of the fruit. So there's that sort of idea of the one. The alcohol represents the one and the, the raw grapes, the bunch of grapes represents the many. That's the philosophical idea. And I think that idea um, goes through wine traditions wherever you find them, the one and the many.
0: I, I like how, and just going back to the Sufis again for a second, you mentioned that, They want to uh, find unity with the one in this lifetime. And you mentioned in your article the mystical temperament. And particularly you say that the mystical temperament is faithless and skeptical and impatient and doubting. Um, And I am aware that there's some stories of Christian mystics pretty much being locked away for heresies. They just kind of uh, usher usher them off and keep them out of the eyes of the public. and I assume it's kind of the same with the Sufis. It's the sense I'm getting now. Um, can we talk about this difference in mentality uh, as it interests me greatly? Because I often find myself in the same position uh, of not coming up against people who are rabid doctrinists, but um, as I grow uh, uh, or go further on my journey, I'm more unable to just see things from an exoteric perspective. And increasingly, I, I, I don't see borders between things as much as what I used to. Um, now, can we talk about the mentality of the, the mystical temperament compared to that of the more left-brain categorizing, pen-pushing kind of mentality and how this plays into this?
1: Yeah. To, to use the example in Islam, again, the idea that... um uh, wine drinking, and the the joys of wine drinking are reserved for paradise. And as I say, you get that idea in, it's a New Testament idea, you know, Christ talks about postponing wine drinking until he can drink the wine of, the new wine. And Protestant groups adopt that symbolism uh, as well. Um, There's the mystical temperament is not prepared to wait until paradise it wants it it wants it immediately and now so it wants these things to be tangible and immediate and embodied and the whole esoteric structure is sort of the moral structure and social structures of religions work as critics of religion you know point out they work by you know telling you that uh, you should behave in this lifetime, and you'll be rewarded after you're dead. Um, for some temperaments, that's not nearly enough. They want, uh, if, there's, if there's God, they want, uh, they want to see him face-to-face sort of as soon as possible, as soon as possible. And um, this is why you get this uh, metaphor of die before you die that uh, there's a spiritual death in life where you you don't means you don't have to wait until after death to drink the wine of paradise you can taste it now and so in my article i talked about that particular temperament and in the christian tradition i pointed to the character of uh, saint thomas i think it's a thomasine sort of temperament and uh, it's uh, a thomas the doubter thomas who wanted to touch the risen christ you know christ had said to uh, uh, the magdalene touch me not Um, but thomas the doubter he wanted to touch he wanted he wanted immediate sort of things. And uh, so the mystical temperament is like that. It's not sort of content with the, the devices of external religion. It wants uh, something more immediate. He doesn't want promises. It wants it delivered. And that's a sort of impatience that can clash with the external authorities and the external temperament. Yeah you um
0: you call this a shamanic dimension it's almost a feature of a more nomadic time perhaps um somewhat inappropriate in a settled agricultural context
1: by shamanic here i i guess i mean they're interested in transformative techniques Mm. these mystical types they're they're not content with um a set of beliefs you know uh, you could have a set of beliefs where you you have the, the the catechism and uh you attend uh you attend church on a regular basis and you observe the the laws of moses and etc. Uh, etc. Et and you know you're a good christian but there are other people who have a very different temperament. And they, want, um, um, they want to go into the depths of the religion, even if it means sometimes, even if it means sometimes, um, that you have to have to violate or seemingly violate the external rules.
0: I, I would say that's almost a primary feature of mysticism from what i can tell from that mystical mindset at least in some some different things um so so for example uh what was one i was looking at recently was the the agoras in india who are a, uh a bunch of sadhus who uh, deliberately transgress decency i think as as <laughs> as a way to get in touch with things
1: Yep, there are there are people like that. You know, they yeah they they walk around naked or they sleep in cemeteries and uh, you know, do all sorts of outrageous things. Um, uh, transgressors, yeah, uh, yeah. And you get that you get that in Islam. You get stories of uh, sort of the divine fool or the divine clown who um, who flaunts all the rules of the religion and yet exposes a deeper spirituality you get characters like that milan Mil- Mil- Nasreddin is the famous example the mad mm. Um people like people like rumi on the other hand are much more successful at integrating their um, their ecstatic practices their shamanic practices like the dance of the whirling dervishes that's very mm. shamanic um, hmm.
0: can we go into that what what is that because i have no idea it looks nice but i've got no idea about it really
1: well, uh, essentially, I think it's a pre-Islamic dance, in fact, but it gets incorporated into Islam and into Sunni Islam um, and gets wedded to the philosophy and the teachings of Rumi, the poet. Uh, and, and it's exactly about achieving a state of divine intoxication and yet you're outwardly sober. That's the idea of the dance. Um, uh, the whirling as, as they call it, you know you, you're moving around and around and around. Um, how, what people don't realize and it's, it's not clear uh, unless you're sort of on the inside of that that uh, spirituality, um, Turkish wh- whirling de- dervishes, um, is that as they as they're turning, as they're whirling, they're also reciting or chanting one of the divine names. And that's uh, silently to themselves, yeah. And the idea in Islam is that you get drunk on the clear wine of the Quran. The Quran is the clear wine, um, and so in the whirling of the the dance, it's not just the whirling, spinning round and round and round, which is you know does strange things to you psychologically and uh, physiologically, I guess, um, but also it forces you to concentrate on the mantra you have a mantra as well and a silent mantra in that particular case um and this the idea is that this is uh transformative but if you've ever seen people do it i've seen people do it many times um in various groups and uh, the amazing thing about it is they spend an hour spinning around on the spot and chanting the divine names and so forth and at the end they're just um they're just absolutely ordinary people who sit around and have a cup of tea, you know. And you think, "Wow, what's what's going on inside them?" They're like that's th- there's this inwardly drunk and outwardly sober sort of thing, you know. You don't get to, you don't fall over uh, if you are outwardly drunk. Of course, you fall over, you stagger like the whirling. If uh, if you don't know how to do it, you'll just spin around on the spot and f- fall over. Um, if you can not get dizzy, that's what you're doing is you're internalizing it and you're stabilizing it. And that's that state of being externally uh, sober and inwardly drunk. Yeah. I think the dance is all about that.
0: Back to Thomas, the doubter, there's something I did want to ask about that, um, <clears throat> that I wasn't aware of, uh, and you, you talk about the liver and we'll get to that a little bit later, but in particular, in the Christian art, uh, such as Caravaggio's painting that represents that scene where Thomas's fingers are uh, basically intruding into Christ's wound, which is, initially when I saw it, I I often get confused by this kind of art because I obviously have no idea about the symbolism behind it or anything else, but since you explained it, it actually made a lot more sense um can we go into this uh notion of the liver why the liver is so significant in this story
1: well you, uh i guess in the first instance we're talking about alcohol and it's uh it impacts the liver yeah. um and uh, uh people have known that for a long time so cool. so it's about that but uh uh, uh in that particular art, what you have there is, you know, it's in Caravaggio. It's very graphic, which is typical of that sort of artist. Um, what you have there is Thomas the Doubter, and he wants he wants to know that Christ, the Risen Christ, is real. That he's a real flesh and blood. He doesn't want to wait until the Second Coming. He wants he he wants to know now, and uh, so in the picture, he's putting his fingers into the wound in the right side of Christ's um, chest. And that, of course, what what he's doing there is, uh, it's very clear in the picture, really, is that he's pointing to the exposed liver the, in the wound. Yeah. So that the whole thing is about the liver there. And we sort of think that that's, that's funny or strange, but in the past, people were much more acquainted with these sorts of things, I think. And uh, the liver meant a lot of things to people in the past. Uh, people believed that the soul resides in the liver, for instance, not in the heart, but the liver that was the most important organ in the body. And, uh, you know, it's enormously important in traditional medicine and uh, in lots of sources. It's also said to be the seat of dreams and visions. Um, and then there's then there's all sorts of uh, ancient practices where, whereby you tell the future from examining the, the liver of a, of a sacrificed animal. Um, there's an enormous body of um, uh, tradition to do with the liver, and we've largely forgotten all of that. I mean, we don't even eat liver anymore, but um, um, we, we we only understand it as some sort of you know very mysterious chemical factory inside our bodies that's doing all sorts of wonderful things. Um, but the mystical or the esoteric dimension of it, uh, understanding it in a very traditional understanding of the human body and also human psychology, the connection between the body and the mind um, yeah we've largely lost all of that and so it's very difficult to acquire and uh, yeah you start talking about the liver in a spiritual context and people think that's very odd but uh, if you look back through the sources people thought the soul itself resided in the liver the liver is very important
0: i must say just just recently i've started eating a lot of uh grass-fed beef liver again and um It's an incredible food. It makes me feel almost uh, high in some way. It's quite, quite incredible. It's probably little wonder, right, that they associated the liver with these kinds of things in in that frame.
1: Oh, well, apart from anything else, we still, we still use it in, you know, uh, forensics. Uh, When someone dies, you can tell how long they've been been dead by, by measuring the temperature of their liver, because it's the hottest organ in the body. And uh, no doubt people in, Traditional warfare, you know, are well acquainted with the fact that the the liver of your enemy is um, is much hotter than their body, Um, and so it's the it's the seat of the vital heat in the body in that sense. Um, But absolutely. Yeah, people, are, people stopped eating liver, I think, in probably my parents' generation. Mm. Probably the last people that ate liver. Um, but it's a, fa- it's a yeah. fantastically good food, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Some people that can't stomach it, they take uh, you know dried liver uh, powder tablets, tablet blood. form. Yeah, desiccated liver, which is better than nothing, I guess. Yeah. But fa- fantastically uh, complete food, yeah.
0: Um, one thing you mentioned is this duality. Of spirit and flesh. Um, there's a duality of the microcosm and the macrocosm. This interests me greatly because obviously as someone that practices meditation and uh, is basically Buddhist, I guess, um, I keep confronting this notion of non-duality and these kinds of outlooks. Is, is there some symbology to do with the, this doubting Thomas and, and the, the liver of Christ and well, that, he's that a, representing duality?
1: Th- Thomas is the twin. So, right. um, you know, it's, uh, you get uh, Thomas means twin. So you have all, it's implicit duality. And when he, when he puts his fingers in the wound of Christ, it's two fingers. And he's underlying the two natures of Christ. Christ is both man and God. And that, that's where, you know, the that non-dual sort of point of view comes up. Christ is, in that theology, Christology, Christ is man and God at once. And it's not an adoptionist position where he was a man and uh, God adopted him. And it's not uh, any other sort of position where he was a God and uh, and he took on a human form or that he was a human who became a became a god rather he's fully god and fully man all at once and um and so that that christ transcends that uh, that duality christ transcends that duality that's the that's the essential part of that um that theology i think in islam it's an interesting situation where once again the text of the quran is the divine word—that's the logos. That's the, the the incarnation, and the question there becomes um, whether God created the Quran or whether the Quran is uncreated. That's where that theology goes in Islam. Uh, that that question of duality mm, b- between what's the relationship between God and His creation—it becomes. Uh, Those sorts of questions,
0: and I guess that's where language uh, very much fails us. And you can understand the mystical inclinations of, uh, you know, Sufis and other people.
1: Yeah, yeah. In and is and Islam, Islam tries to do it with language, um, and that's sort of what they say. The miracle of the Quran is its language. It's a miracle in language, because, you know, the the formula I use in that essay is the Quran is to speech. As water is to wine, as sorry, w- wine is to water. Um, uh, it's sort of like uh, optimised language, and the the how they try to do it is is very interesting. In the formula of uh, the creed of Islam, you get the creed which is uh, in Arabic goes La ilaha illallah, uh, and there's it's almost impossible to translate that. It's 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 really, really difficult. It's usually translated as there is no God but God, which of course is the externalist point of view. But probably an internalist point of view would be to translate it as there is no God, full stop, only Allah. That would be a better translation of it. That's a esoteric translation of it which is to say that yeah Allah is not a god he's not a tribal god he's not a god amongst other gods he's beyond that category altogether um, how do you say that in in, in language is is uh, certainly a real problem and the, the, that's the whole nature of the Quran trying to explain all of those things in in a human language
0: hmm. It's very, very much buddhistic. Uh, I f- really feel like it is particularly, it reminds me of a Zen monk kind of saying, not this, not that, not this. Just the, the only way you can talk about these kinds of things is just simply by saying what it isn't.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's, that's, that's the non-dualist problem, isn't it? You, yeah. uh, you can only say what it's not.
0: Is it the same in Islam? I've never read the Quran. So i've got no idea
1: and um, well islam's islam's sort of a rectification of names of divine names and so the core of the quran are the divine names the uh, the the revelation in in the quran is the divine names and so you're given the names of god all numbers of them you know traditionally 99 of them um with the the secret name the last name being well the main name being allah um yeah uh, well i'm not sure what islam has that has that whole dimension of the the text and you you have to go right into the text um because it's the very word of god that's the it's the breath of god that's the that's the thing about the quran uh not this or not that um yeah that takes the form that takes a very dramatic form in islam as iconoclasm mm. it, it means smashing idols mm-hmm. you know muhammad the smasher of idols um so it it sets out what you what you're out to do is to destroy all forms of false worship stop worshiping the false is the is the injunction in, in islam and uh and then, then you get to what I was saying before, you know, you get to the point where you say, well, my notion of God is a false God. So where do we go from there? Allah must be beyond that. It's beyond conception. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but does, does that leave all the laws and the, and the scriptures intact if you go into that highly abstract um,
0: theology? I guess if the mystics are anything to go by, often it doesn't leave it intact.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, that's yeah. right. There are, you know, some very famous ones in Islam, who al Halaj, for instance, who very famously said, I am I am the truth. I am the truth. And uh, the, the word there was uh, Al Haq, meaning uh, which is one of the names of God. So he was on the surf on the on the surface of things saying. I am. I am God. I am the truth, and uh, he was executed for that. But some time after he was executed, it was a bit late. But uh, some time after he was executed, the the jurists decided that uh, when Al Halaj said that, it wasn't Al Halaj who was speaking.
0: Yeah, they. Well, I think they kind of gleaned the truth there. Actually, it's probably exactly what he would have said.
1: I would imagine. But uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so so yeah you get to, uh they they do get into trouble sufis and mystics in, in all all religious traditions and i just think it's a temperament i think there's a certain temperament that certain people have and uh, it makes if they become religious they ta- it takes that particular form and uh they don't fit in well with the more social aspects of the religion
0: it's almost like the transgression of rules is required to to see in some ways. And I I was thinking about this the other day. I've just read a book on neurophysiology um, because I I sometimes like reading about that kind of stuff. And they were talking about how, pardon me, the the left-hand brain, the left side of, of the brain is primarily a categorizer and it likes to create systems and concepts and all kinds of things. But it also creates this kind of notion that it's in control of the rest of the system. When in fact, that's a bit of an illusion. It isn't the case. And the way this author um, compared it to what we think is that it's like a mirage. It creates a mirage of control. It creates a mirage of there's an actor with free will that does various things. Uh, on its own volition that it reasons out. And they outlined a number of experiments to show that it doesn't, it's not actually the case, uh, largely. Um, and I thought this, this was interesting because I kind of read it at the same time I was thinking about this podcast and this idea that almost like these mystics are breaking down the left-hand categorizing, conceptualizing side of the brain to allow access to that oceanic right-hand consciousness, I suppose, for lack of a better term, and it was just offered an interesting frame, I thought, to think about maybe even Sufism and and uh, and contextualise that at least through the lens of you know modern science, as,
1: as limiting as that is in many ways. Yeah, um, well, certainly, I mean. Uh, whirling dervishes spinning around on the spot for an hour is going to do some funny things to your brain chemistry i imagine yeah um and so you know that would be worth thinking about there um in terms of as you say that oceanic experience of the of the right hemisphere um that's i'm sure part of the what happens in that that Sufi experience that's a very conspicuous one but lots of other group there are lots of other groups that work on the same basis The Muslims sufi sufi Muslims who work themselves up into a state of religious ecstasy uh, one way or another and so that's um breaking down that that left right sort of structure i guess um but although what i find is um in this world of sufism and mystical practices the the division is usually presented as the bifurcation of night and day rather than left and right and i wonder whether they're not in some ways the same things so that in this particular essay i talk about the idea of the sun at midnight the idea of consciousness sleeping and waking sleeping and waking that the the lot of mystical experiences involve superimposing the waking state over the sleeping state or entering deep sleep in a state of consciousness um, I think that that's a psychological description of what happens in a lot of those mystical states. And Mm. so it's a healing of a, it's a healing of a bifurcation. Um, And maybe that's the same bifurcation just expressed differently, as uh, the left, right, bifurcation that sort of characterizes our psychology, I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, Is there an ultimate endpoint in this sufi mysticism like is there a an end state they desire like say in buddhism you reach enlightenment or you know whatever it is or is it just something that's always there that you periodically come in contact with or you have a glimpse of shall we say like how, how do they view the past?
1: The- the path is usually expressed i mean it's expressed in various ways but usually the metaphor they use is uh, are spatial metaphors and so they talk about nearness or presence presence is what you're after and there's there's a term in uh, in islam for this uh, a, an honorary term hadrat hadrat means the presence and uh, to be in the presence of god is uh, is the, what you're after? So that you want this immediate experience of God? You want Him to be present, not delayed, for uh, to some some um, end of life experience in death, not delayed, not that paradise that's delayed, but rather present right now. And um, that's what the that's the state that the Sufis are after. They're after the state of presence. Um, in, interestingly, in Sufism, they're suspicious of uh, charismatic states. So that you know, the, they'll tell you that if you do the Sufi mystical practices long enough, uh, you you may experience visions and things like this. They tell you usually to ignore those. The only thing that matters is the presence. Um, so yeah, that's 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 the ultimate goal, I think, to be in the presence of God. Although it's usually it's, it's also expressed in terms of an erotic symbolism in in association with wine, where uh, the mystical the mystical wedding, the mystical marriage, where God is the beloved and uh so rumi for instance rumi uh, rumi's the day that rumi died which i think is i think is the 8th of december that's celebrated by the mevlevi order his followers as rumi's wedding day that's the day that he was um uh that's the wedding night of with his uh, beloved, they use that symbolism. And of course, the wine goes with with that, the wedding feast and uh, all of that. Yeah. So that erotic symbolism, very platonic erotic symbolism is found in Sufism also um, Also frowned upon by externalists, I guess.
0: Going going into this notion of practices a little bit further, and we've spoken about Sufis quite a bit, um, we also have, and obviously you're a scholar of ancient Greece, but we have these stories in Greece as well. So you have Prometheus, um, <clears throat> and I never made the connection until you, uh, until I read your article um, about his liver being, obviously periodically removed by by a bird. Um, how does that tie into this? Um, and does Christianity borrow to some extent these kinds of themes? Do you think, or builds on them, or the
1: the, the liver here is preeminently the organ of duality. That's what's that's what's at stake here. Uh, so everything we we're saying about duality is embodied in the liver. The liver has two cycles. There's the day cycle and the night cycle. There's the the waking cycle and the sleeping cycle, although uh, in terms of practices, you can manipulate those cycles um, through fasting in particular. So if you stop eating, your body will assume that you're asleep and your, your liver will go over to the night cycle. Um, uh, yeah, that's so uh, that's you know you, you can manipulate that. Now since it's the organ of Duality and duality is, as it were, the problem. Uh, the various spiritual practices are designed to influence, uh, influence the liver, I would say, or to use it as a, as a, as a bodily focus of particular transformations yeah i think there's an alchemy of this sort of spirituality and it has a lot to do with the liver as for how it goes into christianity that's i'm not so sure Um, except through except through the um through the eucharist and the wine in the eucharist so that for instance a typical uh example of it in Christian spirituality would be a situation where you fast before taking the Eucharist. So you stop eating, say, uh, I don't know, Saturday, Saturday lunchtime, and you don't have anything to eat until you go to church the next morning. And the first thing you have is the wine of the sacrament. And that will have a very pronounced effect on your liver because by then your liver's gone into its night cycle and it's well settled into its night cycle. I mean, technically, your body's probably in uh, ketosis. And so the wine will have a very pronounced effect there on the the liver and create all sorts of um, biochemical effects that I think are very deliberate. But I think those those spiritual practices deliberately try to uh, manipulate.
0: The longest fast I've done is seven days, and I can definitely see what's going on here because the way you describe it, as you say, the inner eye is open while the Muslim is awake. Of course, they they fast during Ramadan or whatever else, and I, I kind of see the I kind of see this in some ways when I did it although i didn't break my fast with wine i might try that next time because <laughs> you wouldn't recommend it or
1: <laughs> no i wouldn't recommend it right. but 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 those but pious christians do you know and that's the idea of the big sunday lunch the big sunday roast it's like after you've you've been far you're supposed to fast before you before the eucharist people don't anymore yeah, yeah. 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 um but uh but uh, y- y- yeah fasting's a Fasting is a very important, very powerful um, uh, device, tool, and um, people use it for health and so forth, but for as a spiritual tool, it's very powerful. Yeah. And it creates this um, this great mental clarity um, um, amongst other things after a few days, you know, after you've stopped being hungry.
0: Yeah, particularly with the right preparation, of course. I think that people sometimes jump into it maybe a little bit too quickly. Uh but i've i've always said to people um who do it uh that they're kind of if if it's not treated spiritually in some way i think they're only obtaining well less than half the benefit i would say in in some ways there's something profound about uh engaging in it for for other reasons not just health
1: yeah well i mean another way to think about it is uh you're stopping You're stopping um, food or in the muslim fast you're stopping water and food because it's a dry fast but the thing about that is to look at it the other way is it's um you're living on air and so it changes your relationship to breathing and i think that that's uh so so if you're doing fasting i think it's also good to attend to your breathing at the same time and to do breathing practices with fasting because you're running on air when you're fasting. Um, You know, it's the only thing you're taking in.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I've done some yogic breathing while I've, I've been in fasting states like pranayama and several other kinds of things. And yeah, definitely, unfortunately I have to work usually during those periods. Um, But I can imagine if I wasn't involved in the every day you have to be here and Conscious kind of world that you could potentially have some pretty impactful experiences. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Muslim, see, Muslims, when they fast, they have to go to work. You have to, uh, you can't just sit around all Ramadan and do nothing, although people do. But um, the ideal is to, to be very active in the world. You know, it's that idea of being in the world, but not of the world. And the fasting makes you feel not of the world. You're sort of detached from it, and you have control and um and distance. And yet you have to go about your day-to-day world, and that's where the benefit of it is really. So Islam's not monastic. It doesn't have this withdrawal from the world. It has a um going inward, remaining in the world, but going inward is the important thing. So it seems, Uh, that
0: Christianity does seem to lack these kinds of things. And it it just, um, it's interesting to me that that's the case. I wonder if pre-Christian religions in Europe, perhaps, even though we kind of have clownish shows like Vikings or whatever, which make them look like bikies from, you know, Tattooed up and with face paint and everything, which I wouldn't imagine was the case. I could be wrong. Um, but I often wonder, it'd be interesting to see if Europe had some of these practices prior to the introduction of Christianity. Um, and I know we know a little bit about ancient Greece and ancient Rome and places like that, but particularly some of the more, um, you know, paganistic religions perhaps like Nordicism or various other things like this. I've always wondered if they had these kinds of um, rituals and, and practices and if any of this filtered through to Christianity as we see it in the modern West today or if it was
1: all effectively
0: stifled out
1: yeah, so pre-Christian, uh, like uh, I'm sure that there is a rich heritage of pre-Christian practices. Certainly, in the field that I know, which is ancient Greece, um, pre-Christian Greece, pagan Greece, um, there's there's a very rich tradition of all sorts of spiritual practices. Um, we, you know, we concentrate on the philosophy and the thought, but there were practices that went with those those things. To what extent were they eliminated by Christianity, and to what extent were they taken up by Christianity? I'd, I'd imagine that lots of it was taken up into Christianity in various forms. But um, Christian history is peculiarly discontinuous; it has all sorts of breaks, like the Protestant Reformation and uh, and and things like that in the East East. East-West split of the church and uh, and things like that. So I'm not sh- not really sure how all of that went into Christianity and where it was preserved. Probably in monastic practices, um, rather than than later sort of pieties among the laymen. I, I think it's you'd find it more in monastic practices like hesychasm. Mm-hmm.
0: Orthodoxy is more mystical would you describe it that way I've, I've heard that um, the the Orthodox Church less kind of language based and legalistic more more of a uh, mystical kind of way of doing things
1: yeah I think that that's uh, that's generally my impression I haven't had a lot to do with um, Eastern Orthodoxy mm. um, but uh, but that's certainly my impression my impression, uh, I, my general impression of it is, which I'm sure is accurate, is that it's much more platonic than the Western church, which is, in comparison, more Aristotelian. Right. So there's that sort of distinction sure. um, goes into the two different churches, yeah.
0: Yeah, interesting. Um, so in general, you suggest that the understanding of this symbolism and, you know, obviously many other elements uh, maybe. be key to unravelling tensions between the east and west
1: yeah yeah because um like i say i what i decided to do was to take take an issue in which there seems no common ground at all um, an, an irreconcilable difference namely wine drinking um, because it's so obvious you know you go to a place like pakistan and you can't buy a drink um, it's a it's a non-drinking Culture, it's a whole non drinking civilization. It's very uh, extraordinary in some ways for a Western person to turn up there and find a whole civilization where no one drinks um, and a whole religion sort of very adamant about that. Um, if you can resolve a problem like that, if you can find common ground in a problem like that, then that bodes well for. Deeper understandings in all sorts of other ways. That's just the way I was thinking about it. Yeah. If you if you can if you can find common ground on an issue like wine, then other other differences are comparatively easy.
0: You you mentioned that you did this uh, speech initially in Pakistan. Uh, yeah, that's right. How, how was it received at the time?
1: Oh, okay. Oh, you uh, I'm curious? Uh, it was it was a bit. Um, i felt it was a bit uh, controversial right. um when i, I was ma- when i was speaking I well, yeah when i was speaking uh, i started speaking and the 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 guy in charge tried to cut me off oh, tried to um wow. yeah that, that's what happened but but i just kept going anyway i feared i'm not going all the way to pakistan to not give my talk hmm. so i did give my talk anyway um uh and Afterwards, there was a there was a party. Afterwards, amongst illustrious people who were at the conference, and uh, people people enjoyed the talk. They they thought it was interesting. In fact, it generated a, quite a bit of discussion because I don't know, wine's a bit a bit sensational for them. The whole topic, um, it was a bit uh, a bit controversial in that sense.
0: Yeah even to talk about it that's
1: even yeah it's even to talk about it yeah i think so um yep
0: i guess maybe i thought you were trying to corrupt the youth of
1: yeah there's (laughs) that you you know you it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a a difficult topic it's uh a sensitivity and you're talking you're trying to present nuances about it Mm. and trying to say that you know actually christians and muslims aren't really different on these sorts of things Uh, i mean they are in obvious ways but there are there's a sense in which um, they can see each other's point of view
0: Mm. and i would imagine in the west people are probably a lot more open to this
1: way of thinking Yeah, absolutely. And and Sufism too. Sufism, the heartland of Sufism these days is more in the West than it is in the Islamic world. Sufism Sufism is thriving in the West and in um, exiled communities uh, or immigrant communities in the West and amongst converts and uh, Western people. Whereas it's sort of in decline in the islamic world as I, I lived in malaysia for a couple of years and yeah you don't find any in malaysia and when you do it's rather mixed up with um animism and uh mm, okay. a, and uh, th- that sort of that sort of stuff same in indonesia yeah you get which has sort of been frowned upon by the religious authorities for you know a good 50 years now
0: yeah I could, I could imagine that embracing animism would probably make it a lot more unpalatable uh, for the for the authorities in those places yeah probably yep, yep. Yeah. That, yeah otherwise if it was just yeah. animism by itself probably
1: yeah well, you know I, I can think of examples of it for instance, in northern uh, northern java, um, there's a place that i can, can't remember the name of it in any case it's a, a it's a sacred place. To the Indonesians and uh, a site of Indonesian Sufism. And it was said that if you made a pilgrimage to that place seven times, it was as good as going to Mecca once. So if you couldn't afford to go to Mecca, uh, you know, and the only wealthy people could, um, you could go to this place in Java but you had to do it seven times. That was a very traditional thing that went on for hundreds and hundreds of years in Indonesia, in Java. But of recent times, the religious authorities have imposed a much stricter form of uh, orthodoxy. Uh, and they say, no, no, you can't do that. You can't Going here seven times is not gonna change the fact that you need to go to Mecca once in your lifetime. Um So they've straightened those sorts of things out. Those local customs and those uh, local mystical practices and things like that have been downplayed and a much more uh, uniform orthodoxy has been imposed uh, in Indonesia. And that's part of their national project to build a nation after you know the Dutch and British period. Um, and the same in Malaysia.
0: Uh, The same thing has happened there too. It's a shame. I I can't see the average Indonesian living on a couple of rupee a day um, getting on a plane to Mecca anytime soon. So uh, uh, is is this part of this encroachment of exotericism in the world? Is that what you'd describe it as?
1: Yeah, I would uh, would describe it as, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, uh, I'm I'm not sure how it goes in in buddhism um but in other religions you're getting this very strong sort of exoteric um you know i see it as sort of just a religious version of people clamoring for law and order in during uncertain times you know
0: buddhism's a funny one i think it depends probably where you are i mean you have movements in burma which are quite uh militaristic then um you have the west which of course has gone the exact opposite way and it's been embraced as a kind of neo-marxist left-wing thing where you have social causes somehow and even though there's no real self i'm a victim how that how that works i got no idea but anyway i mean maybe i'm missing something yeah completely bizarre so it's weird that it's been used and i guess in a way you can kind of see kind of see why because in a way, it's, it, it's conducive maybe to a, a feeling of, well, I can kind of be whatever I want. If you know, I can imagine I'm this or that, even though that's completely missing the point. But it's kind of gone the other way in the West anyway. And yeah, I, it's hard to say other places. I'm not really familiar with it. But,
1: um, the, West, the West is uh, interesting for various reasons. Um, the, the arrival of modernity took a very anti-traditional form so you get, always get this sort of dynamic whereby you have to destroy the past in order to be modern whereas um a lot of other cultures didn't really do that to the same extent so i'm thinking of somewhere like japan japan which was very amazing for me because it's a very very traditional society or at least the parts of it i saw and um and yet ultra modern um, there's a different mix of tradition and modernity there, and that's had a different impact upon their religious and uh, spiritual traditions, I think.
0: Yeah, I agree. I I think that's true. I think what's helped them is they've largely ignored the West. Uh, they've had a stream of philosophers and people that have gone to the West, kind of taken what they want, what they maybe see of value, and left the rest of the rubbish <laughs> Uh, where, yeah, where yeah, they got it from. So, um, yeah, yeah I, I and, and
1: arguably, right. arguably, the Chinese are involved in a similar process. You know, I guess, yeah. uh, although the within a Marxist framework or supposedly Marxist framework, there.
0: Yeah, I, I think I've lived in China for a couple of years, and I I can say that they seem to be more inclined towards a modernism, like a Western modernism, and they they do have a a Confucian family element, which I. From what I observed, is still strong, but you can see elements of decline, like in, in the West. But it will be interesting to see how it turns out. It's definitely not a story that's over yet, that's for sure. No, it's not. No. No, it's not. No, no, no. Yeah. Um, so just uh, and, and of course- yeah,
1: sorry. Uh, of course uh islamic countries too are going through enormous amount of trauma trying to come to terms with modernity you know you get that's what's happening in the world in which we live all different societies are having to come to terms with modernity and so you you run into failed modernities Mm. there's uh you know some places modernity has has failed um and uh Different, arguably, lots of parts of the Islamic world are like that. Yeah, yeah. Afghanistan, you know, let's talk, say Afghanistan, for instance.
0: Yeah, finally the Americans have withdrawn or they're in the process of doing so, I guess. So uh, maybe you can let them finally get on with it. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, j- just circling back, uh, alcohol, I think, um, it's definitely my own experience. Uh, like many drugs, it's probably been robbed its transcendent properties or elements. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, uh, you know, most of the people I, I know use it really to kind of dull the lackluster misery <laughs> of their, of their modern lives. Um, and I see this all the time, um, go in the pub after work, whatever it is, is really almost like a way of just going, Oh, that was just absolutely awful. Uh, I need to forget about it somehow. Um, so particularly now, being stuck in our, in our homes um, uh, all the time, the temptation to just get you know, pissed is pretty much always there. Um, how, and, and we have this disease of alcoholism as a result. But do you think there's any way we can bring it back to that more transcendent uh, Dionysian understanding of, of it as an experience in itself?
1: Oh, it's hard to, hard to see, is it? It's yeah, uh, yes. hard to see that. I mean, it's a it's it's a social drug. I mean, we can talk about its mystical properties and its spiritual value and its transcendent aspects, but it's also a very common social drug that's very easy to make um, and uh, very deeply embedded in our culture. So I, 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 I don't see any real prospects of re-enchanting it in in that sense in you know, any sort of coherent or integral sense um particular people might adopt that uh might adopt that attitude to it though regarding it as uh so as as, as something divine uh but it's largely a social a social thing and uh as as Social relations deteriorate in any any context. Alcoholism will go up, won't it? Alcoholism will will become a, a more more severe problem.
0: Absolutely, in, in Australia, you obviously know this, but it's it's almost like if you don't want to drink alcohol and you're at a social event, you're kind of a pariah. It's almost impossible uh, not to drink in many ways. Like, or, or it requires a very strong will anyway that that kind of
1: oh it does it yeah. does yeah I, I i've been i've been pretty successful at it. I, I i i very rarely drink now and i i probably didn't drink for about 15 years i didn't drink at all but um that present presents all sorts of social problems that's right you end up drinking a lot of mineral water yeah. um <laughs> yeah uh, and uh uh in, Austra- in in the Australian context, that's right. It's almost regarded as un-Australian, or this must be something wrong with you. Uh, it's very, very difficult. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's um. It's it's kind of sad in a way that yeah I I I agree with you. I can't really see anything like this changing by by people willing it. It seems like we're very much. Um, in this in this dance now and uh it's going to end the way it ends i'm, I'm just um
1: i think you know, so yeah. yeah what's uh what, what's the position of alcohol in buddhism i mean I've, I've seen lots of the buddhist world but i've never been really able to piece together a, a coherent uh view of that it seems very different in different places as,
0: as far as i know it's not really well, it's mostly coherent so mo- most buddhists and particularly monks don't touch it because the Buddha said you shouldn't like uh, touch things that intoxicate you. But, but interestingly, and, and what made me look at this a little bit differently was, was that story by my teacher that certain Mahayanist Buddhists uh, and particularly the only, the main ones I'm aware of is Zen monks in Japan do drink in that context. Um, and they do drink sake. Um, so, so, so yeah, I, I would say mostly, yeah, Buddhists, Buddhists don't drink. I've been in Tibet as well, and of course, they do uh, have rituals uh, involving alcohol. The monks themselves don't drink, but I I do recall being in a temple in Lhasa. The name escapes me, which one it was. But there was a, a statue there, and there was alcohol and the smell of alcohol all over the place. And I was led to believe that they actually use it for oracular purposes and they 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 consume alcohol for that ritual but in terms of people drinking doesn't really happen um i guess lay people in various places do drink alcohol mongolia is a good example um uh and and japan obviously but yeah i think it's a little bit complicated but but overall yeah most most buddhists you know particularly the monks don't don't
1: drink Yeah, you see, it's that that monkishness of uh, foregoing alcohol. But but in in the Islamic world, this is applied to the whole society. This is why uh, critics of Islam say that, you know, it's it's a cruel social order because it imposes a monkish-style restriction upon everybody Mm. rather than just people who have that uh, temperament to live a monkish life. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, someone described Islam as a a democracy of married monks. It's a very strange sort of platypus, um, (laughs) a very, very strange mixture of things from one point of view. Um, Yeah, in most traditions, uh, um, foregoing alcohol is uh, uh, required of monks and people that have vocations and devote themselves to a higher calling rather than uh the ordinary people yeah
0: yeah which makes sense you can't spend all your time hung over i suppose and um try to pursue you know the ultimate goal doesn't really doesn't really work um and obviously has subtle effects on your mentality i mean when when i've gone through phases where i haven't touched alcohol i've the consciousness the, the quality of consciousness is a lot different uh, i think yes
1: yeah, I I agree. I'm 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 interested in health questions mm. and all of that, um, but I'm also really aware of the the cognitive dimensions of these things, mm. um, uh, alcohol and other intoxicants, as well as uh, foods and fasting, and and so forth. They all have really interesting effects on our cognitive performance. Yeah, particularly fasting, as,
0: as we spoke about, even, even the nature of our diets, um, people that are vegetarian or, uh, you know, eat meat, for example, um, they all do have these yeah, impacts on the quality of, of our, the way we see things.
1: Yeah, and, the, and the, the, the center of all of that is the liver. The center of all, you know, uh, where drinking, drinking alcohol. Actually, I I read an article recently about microdosing on alcohol. That was really interesting. Um, If you if you don't drink alcohol, you can just microdose on alcohol, and it has a has a very pronounced effect on your liver, a beneficial effect on your liver, and it's sort of like taking half a glass of wine per week. It's not very much. Um,
0: What's the mechanism? For that, do they? Yeah,
1: on? I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. It was a scientific paper, it was a study that had been done, and uh, I was interested in it. On, you know, that whole idea of um, a small dose having a big effect. Sure. sure. Uh, I was, like a I whole was interested medic, in that.
0: Hormetic effect. Like
1: it's, the yeah, idea yeah. You have a,
0: a, a small amount of a poison, it could be from a vegetable yeah. or something like yep. that. It seems to set off some cascade of. Uh,
1: That's right. That's sideways. right. Yeah. 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 But the the liver's very sensitive to alcohol. Yeah. You know. So so if you don't drink alcohol and you have a small amount of alcohol, it's it's going to have a a major effect on your liver. A beneficial one, apparently.
0: Um, it's like what they say. You should maybe have a glass of wine a day with um, with food, which I could never adhere to. That's my problem. Is maybe it's those Irish monks brewing whiskey or whatever it was in the past, but I I can't. I can't really control myself that easily, so I tend to forego it completely. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, they, they I mean, they do, they do say, in, um, if you, yeah, if you do have a little bit of red wine or something with dinner, not even a glass, I think it's even less than that.
1: Um, yeah, a small amount, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, that's right. Um, but the affecting the liver, you know, the, it has uh, uh, effects on consciousness as well that's mm. that's what's that's what I'm interested in
0: and and what have you noticed in that respect to just to go a bit further into effects on consciousness like ha, have you practiced any of these things yourself or
1: yeah yeah have you I have done a bit um, of fasting and- the, the the fasting I, I find the fasting really interesting especially the dry fasting um, wet fasting is you know where you can drink liquids yeah. uh, dry fasting is much more um well, potentially dangerous. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. but but that's the fast thing that Muslims do. Mm-hmm. Um, what they do is uh, during Ramadan is once again it's that cycle of day and night. You're not allowed to eat or drink while the sun is in the sky. As soon as the sun goes down, you can eat and drink. So it's that they're accentuating that day night duality, mm-hmm. uh, which is as I say embodied in the liver. And the cycles of the liver what you do during ramadan for a whole month is you reverse those cycles Hmm. so that what is normally happening while you're asleep and dreaming is now happening while you're awake and walking around
0: yeah i've never done a dry fast so so what is there any difference did you notice the quality of the experience
1: harder to do it's much harder to do because you you don't have like something distracting you like a sipping water or something um it's uh uh yeah it's much more intense i think it's Mm -hmm. much more intense if you if you go to bed you know you go to bed at i don't know 10 o'clock at night and uh you get up the next morning and you don't eat or drink until the sun goes down that day Mm -hmm that's a long haul Mm. of your body is, your body still thinks it's asleep. Mm. Mm. Um, And uh, so, so it's that effect of walking around while you're walking around sleeping. It's a sleepwalking sort of thing. And yet you're fully conscious Um, and over a, over a month of doing that in Ramadan and it gets more intense in the last week. Um, yeah that has a very pronounced effect on your mind, I think. Yeah. Uh, that's my my experience of that.
0: It seems paradoxical because usually religions say that it's about waking up, I suppose, in a way, doesn't it? So it's interesting that they describe it as being asleep. and and again, I guess it comes down to what you're describing as having this inner, inner world of maybe clarity and your the outer
1: yeah, the, of uh, sleepiness or something yeah it is that it's it's, it's switching those things sleeping and waking yeah. it's uh it's it's playing with sleeping and waking i mean the, the 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 correlate to that is the opposite the opposite to that is being wide awake while fully asleep i mean in in your sleep if you go to sleep at night and uh you enter the deep sleep state fully conscious um yeah that's that's the state that you're after in the fasting and there's there's a night at the end of ramadan called the night of power um uh where where uh the idea is that you you have visions it's a that's the night of visions, and the visions come about because you've you've manipulated your your liver cycle for thirty days. Hmm. Um, that's that's what's happening there. Yeah,
0: the night of visions. So you are saying the Sufis are sceptical of visions or visionary. States. Well, yeah. Well, different? that's
1: right. Yeah, they are. This is this is different. This would mm. this is in the context of um, the last week of Ramadan. Yeah, so it's mm. a known it's a known thing. It's the not night a, of visions. Yeah, permitted visions. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah. Well, some visions are some visions are authentic and worthwhile. It's just in the, on the Sufi path. They tell you not to pay too much attention to those sorts of things. Sure. Just sure. keep going. Yeah. 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 Okay. Interesting.
0: Well. I think this has been an awesome chat, uh, Rod. Thanks for dropping in and talking to me again. That's, um, I think I, I learned a lot. Islam, not something I know anything about. So this has been uh, very interesting. And I'm, I can see some parallels here, to be honest, with, with Buddhism and, and various ways of looking at things. And I, I like these chats because it, it always becomes obvious to me that ultimately there's not really any border between the ultimate reality, the the oneness that is, and I think that's important for everyone to kind of get their heads around at some point in their life. Yeah,
1: I do too. In 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 academia, what you get is uh, a lot of a lot of particularisms. You know, like they're they're constantly constantly trying to point out the differences between cultures and and religions. Um, whereas my inclination, having lived in travelled widely and read uh read widely and lived in other cu- cultures is that there's it's the similarities that are really striking hmm. and that are really interesting in fact um yeah. yeah so so it's important that we that we explore those i think
0: absolutely and you know, i think it comes down with academics down to this language use again i always thought that is, when you look at something just as a concept or uh, a, something based purely on words then it's very easy to find contradictions and I feel like with religion, part of the, the trouble with doing that is that these really reference experiences and uh, certain states of consciousness, ways of existing in the world. And when you when you do travel, you do come up against these and you start to understand these things a little bit. And uh, then it, it becomes not abstract or conceptual. It just becomes something that you organically understand. And I think the more that you get out of that frame of mind, using language to pick apart theories and go, oh, look at this, this doesn't match up with that, then then things do tend to collapse, or these borders do collapse.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's certainly my experience. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Yeah, you know, that's not to say that there aren't real differences and real, real borders as well, Um, but they're not all important. There's a a dimension that's uh, above and beyond those differences. Yeah.
0: How could there not be? <laughs> so, yeah, um, how could there not yeah. be? That's
1: all right. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh, cupbearer, fill the soul from that pre existent cup, that thief of the heart, that ambusher of formal religion. Fill it with the wine that springs from the heart and mixes with the spirit. The wine whose bubbling intoxicates the god-seeing eye. Vats of this wine, vats of that. Until you break that vat, you will never taste this wine. That wine frees the heart from sorrow for an instant. Never can it snuff out sorrow, never can it uproot malice. One drop from this cup will turn your work into gold. May my soul be sacrificed to this golden cup. Beware lest the bad companion deceive you through whisperings. Never break the covenant with kings through weakness.